all right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. And yes, welcome back. We are here with the Mars Podcast. I don't know why I'm speaking in a stilted fashion. This is Dario Strange here with Vic Song. Yes, and this week we are <laughs> transmitting from the tumultuous confines of New York City. If you're uh, watching mainstream news, you probably know some of the stuff going on here. We're not really going to get into that. Maybe if uh, we find some way into it um, in the coming days, but um, some unfortunate events have happened and we are aware of them. But we're uh, at least for this week, we're going to stick to uh, science fiction and technology and science, as it were. But that doesn't mean we won't uh, discuss some important issues, one of which affects the franchise known as Star Trek. Again. Yes. Do you want to kind of give like an intro to what happened here? So uh, if you've been following the news about, you know, the upcoming Star Trek movie, Star Trek Beyond, uh, you know, and I say that like there isn't 5,000 news articles coming out every other day about something coming out related to Star Trek. And I mean, we did do a whole episode about that, about the Star Trek 50th anniversary. So, you know, if you haven't listened to that episode, you should go back and listen to it. Uh, But subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Google. Anywhere Sorry, you go can ahead. get podcasts. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh and on uh, YouTube. Too. Like if you're if you're someone who listens to audio on YouTube, we're also on YouTube. We're just going to get all the plugs like out of the way yes. real early on. Um, okay. But yes. So uh, if you've been paying attention to all the stuff that's been coming out about the upcoming movie, one of the things that, you know, has been reported about has been that, you know, Star Trek is about to get its first major LGBTQ character in the form of Hikaru Sulu. Played by John Cho. Played by John Cho, uh, who is awesome. And basically what's new about that, because that story itself is not necessarily the most new thing on the block. So what's new is that George Takei did an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, and he said he's not entirely happy about it. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I have the quotes here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so he talked to The Hollywood Reporter, and this is what he said. He said, I'm delighted, quote, I'm delighted there's a gay character. Unfortunately, it's a twisting of Gene, uh, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. Uh, it's a twisting of Gene's creation to which he put in so much thought. I think it's really unfortunate. And then later in the story, they tell us that um, he actually had a conversation with the actor playing uh, Sulu, John Cho. And uh, Takei says, quote, I told him, be imaginative, be imaginative and create a character who has a history of being gay rather than Sulu, who has been straight all this time, uh, suddenly being revealed as closeted. And so that was his initial conversation with Cho. And I guess Takei somehow thought maybe, you know, this mm-hmm. would get back to the directors, the producer, the, the you know, uh, the director is, um, Justin Lin, I believe. Yeah. Uh, the producers, JJ Abrams, uh, my whipping boy on this <laughs> podcast. And, um, and of course the actor is John Cho. So I guess he thought, uh, Takei thought that his, uh, opinion would get back to the people handling the franchise. But um, in the Hollywood Reporter story, he later says that he had another exchange with Cho and Takei says, quote, I said, this movie is going to be coming out on the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, the 50th anniversary of paying tribute to Gene Roddenberry, the man whose vision carried us through a half century. Honor him and create a new character, I urged them. He left me feeling that that was going to happen. And, of course, later in the article, we find out that that's not happening. There will be no change. Sulu in the rebooted mm-hmm. version of Star Trek, uh, that's going to Star Trek that's going to be coming out, Star Trek Beyond, Sulu will be revealed as gay with a, I'm assuming, a male partner, and they have a child. Mm-hmm. A daughter, uh, according to that particular article. And the article also mentioned that Simon Pegg, who penned the script for the upcoming Star Trek film, he also had an exchange with Takei where he like thanked him. For well, it, yeah, it wasn't really an exchange, to my understanding. Yeah. It was more like a note that he sent yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like praising him for, I guess, his pr- uh, pride and promotion of um, of Star Trek as a franchise. And I believe Takei said something about Peg mentioning, you know, him being kind of like a great representative of the gay community. I'm not sure. 
so, I mean, what was your first, well, okay, before you saw this, because the way mm-hmm. this TikTok happened in the news, first the news came out that the new Star Trek Beyond would reveal Sulu as a gay character. And that, I think, was out there for at least 24 hours, maybe a little bit more. And I think the reaction from a lot of people, like the initial reaction seemed to be positive. Mm-hmm. And I, we just saw this, at least I just saw this today. Uh, from Takei. And now I think people are thinking it over a little bit more. I mean, what was your first, before you saw Takei's reaction, what was your initial? Um, I didn't really think too hard on it. I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Like, that's a thing that they do now. Like, I guess they're doing it for Star Trek 2. And, you know, one of the things is that, you know, obviously people know now that George Takei is gay and they know that he's vocal about uh, LGBTQ, um, rights and all all of that and that he's very active in the community and very outspoken so i think what i thought was and i'm assuming that this is what peg and justin lynn and john cho were thinking was that this was a nice way to honor george takei because he is gay and so you know he originated the character and all of that but when i read takei's reaction to it it seemed, and, you know, his recounting of the whole um, saga of, of, of all of this, because uh, I believe he was informed about this about a year ago, um, it seems like he wasn't consulted at all. And that gave me some pause, because if you're trying to honor someone, you should potentially con- consult with them. Yeah, I think it, it seems like they thought this would be some sort of cool surprise for him. Yeah. You know? Uh, hey, look, we honored you by doing this. And, you know, and the thing is, it's like, you know, this kind of reminds me of a few things. So this week we also, and I, I don't want to muddy the waters here, but just to kind of connect a few dots. Uh, this week we also found out that uh, a new version of Iron Man, I believe, at least in the comic books, will be a teenage black girl named Riri. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see this? I saw the headlines. I didn't get a chance to delve deep into it. Yeah, so there's they have like an illustration, you know, very attractive looking uh, teenage black girl, um, and, you know, and then this makes me think of like you know, I guess Miles Morales. He's the ultimate Spider-Man. So like Marvel did this whole thing where there was an ultimate like reboot, alternate universe take on all the on all of their characters, and in Ultimate spoilers, uh, Peter Parker gets killed, and the new. Uh, Spider-Man who rises in his place is Miles Morales. And there are other characters in the comic book world where they're taking a classically, you know, a, a character mm-hmm. that's, you know, one uh, race or gender. I know uh, this happened with Thor. They made Thor a woman, I believe, or at least that was proposed. And they definitely um, made Thor a woman. Right. And so, you know, so this makes me think of like all of these kind of, um, I guess in a way you can call it rever- reverse race bending in that, you know, the intention from my vantage point is uh, a positive one. It's, you know, even if you go back to the notion of introducing a black Barbie, I love the intention, but here's my thing. And I, and I kind of, um, I want to read, I want to reread something to case said in the Hollywood reporter article that I really agree with. It's this, he says, be imaginative, be imaginative and create a character who has a history of being gay rather than Sulu, who has been straight all this time, suddenly being revealed as being closeted. And this is kind of this it resonated for me because one thing I don't like, you know, I love the intention behind a lot of these moves when it's, you know, mm-hmm. you're taking a character and taking it into a different whether it's gender, sexual orientation, race. I love the intention, but, you know, from my vantage point, you know, as Decay indicates, it's far more authentic and valuable to fans and to the artists behind the work to just create a new character. And I'll just, and I was trying to like do like a thought of experiment on my own, like trying to think, think, who would I hate for someone to change on a gender or race level? Uh, who I appreciate from like the comic book or comic book movie world. And I immediately thought of Blade, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, everything about Blade, you know, is about his kind of, I mean, yes, he's like this kind of hybrid vampire or whatever. The, the, at least in the films, 
you know, mm-hmm. his cool, his demeanor, his approach, his delivery. It's all about, you know, what Wesley Snipes, a black guy, brought to the character. I think it's completely reasonable, you know, from a narrative point of view that, oh, you know, through body transference or something, you know, <laughs> it becomes, I don't know, a Japanese woman. And, you know, and she has these the same skills and memories of Blade, but now Blade looks completely different. You know, I think that's a legit plot twist. But how about just create a, a character that owns their own history, owns their own background? Uh, it takes a lot more work. But I think the benefits outweigh the work involved because, again, it's more authentic. I mean, look what happened here. You you took someone, Sulu, uh, played by George Takei, and you you did something to the character in what is admittedly, admittedly uh, an alternate universe, according to J.J. Abrams, an mm-hmm. alternate Star Trek universe. And yet the guy who would at least, you know, supposedly on a cultural level – supposedly be, you know, the most whatever, I guess they assumed, the producers assumed the most um, appreciative uh, or beneficiary of such a move. He prefers that you stick with what the original creator, Gene Roddenberry, intended. So, I mean, what was I, I gave my long spiel. Where, where how, how do you fall on this? Um, so I'm going to do devil's advocate here and mm-hmm. just say, like, I don't disagree with you on, I think, your points are very valid, but I do think that there is a lot of power in making a more major and known character uh, gay than, let's say, a a new character that people just may not care about and don't have an established relationship with. I think you mentioned that, of course, it does create uh, a lot of work for people to, to create that new character and to build that relationship, but, like, you know, if if people have a relationship established already and it's a pivotal character to the originals, then, you know, it is something that's very easy for people to latch onto and to understand. So making Sulu gay is, it's it's a big thing for people watching it as opposed to like, let's introduce a new character that no one knows about. And this character also happens to be gay. I'm not saying that would be worse. I actually would really like to see that as well. But I, I can see what they were thinking for it as like it's a powerful it's a powerful statement to make a major character gay. Well, I mean, it also comes off as forced, and mm-hmm. I think there's a difference between let's talk about like some of the major science fiction disaster movies. Often, and this is before the rise of Barack Obama, but often you would see the president as a black person. Mm-hmm. You know, most often um, uh, Morgan Freeman, right? You know, Morgan Freeman or someone else. And, you know, often in, in films, you know, they're, you know, they'll put some authority figure in there uh, and they'll make sure it's like, you know, some black person or, you know, sometimes a Hispanic person. I feel like that's a little bit more. Uh, I, I can I can accept that more because it doesn't seem as forced. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, hey, look what may happen or look what kind of situation may go down, you know, in this police precinct or in, or in this political environment. But when you take a character that people have been dealing with for decades mm-hmm. and you suddenly introduce a new aspect that not only wasn't there before, but the creator never intended, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like uh, that's the definition of force. Yeah. You know, there's one example that comes to mind uh, of that. And, you know, uh, we mentioned briefly the ultimate universe series in, in Marvel. And one of those characters, a very famous X-Men Colossus in the ultimate version turned out to be gay. And, you know, uh, some fans were upset about that because he had a very established history with Kitty Pryde or Shadowcat and being a romantic relationship. And, you know, after years and years, people were invested in that. And for them to have an alternate timeline where they just made Colossus gay, you know, some people felt that was a betrayal to the, original character. You know, other people appreciated it, sure, but another argument for, you know, when I was trying to get into George Takei's head, you know, why does Zulu have to be gay just because Takei is? Right. No, I mean, I think that's another great point because it's, you know, I have a number of people who are out, you know, in my friend group, and one thing that I see that rubs them the wrong way on this issue is when someone tries to define them 
as a person primarily through, you know, you know, wh- what sec, you know, sexual orientation. That's not, I mean, to K has, is out now, mm-hmm. but to kind of like try to honor him and say, okay, this is how we're honoring you. It almost makes it seem like, okay, well, this is the sum total, or this is kind of like the biggest thing we know you for. How about honoring him? Well, I think they actually did honor him. I think in the first, um, uh, installment with the sword fight because yeah. one of Sulu in the original uh, series, one of his, mo- I mean, just most awesome. I remember, uh, you know, as a kid, Bruce Lee was huge for me. Mm-hmm. And after Bruce Lee, one of the biggest images I remember in my mind of just like some badass, you know, just with like scars on his chest and like, you know, sweaty in battle is Sulu. You know, on the Enterprise, and I think in the episode, you know, he some alien has made him take leave of his senses or something like that. And he has a sword. And it was just badass. And in the reboot, they have uh Sulu, I believe. Am I am I am I right on that? I think they had John Cho yeah, he wielding was on, a sword. He was on top of a ship or some sort of apparatus and he had to hold someone off and he took out a sword and he, he did his thing and he was super. Yeah, cool. that was a great yeah, that was, that was a great callback. I mean, uh I talked about it brief, briefly before, but it seems like they just didn't consult him. And it feels like if you're going to pay tribute or honor someone, you might want to just talk to them. Yeah. Just try to get their their take on how that would be just like. And, and I, I read this article several times and I have to say, I don't get the sense that he's mildly annoyed by this. I get I get the f- sense that he feels that this has kind of tainted the franchise and if not the franchise, at least his own role in the franchise on some level. And I get it. You know, well, especially since he's been associated with this character for so many years, you know, it's not like it's not like, you know, Adam Driver, they made a decision for Kylo Ren. Well, he's only been Kylo Ren for like a year. Are you really putting Star Wars here again? (laughs) Sorry. How dare you? How dare you? Well, we got it. We got to keep the the on air tension alive. (laughs) Flag on the play. Anyway, so so Simon Pegg doesn't care what George Takei thinks. Uh, I'm just going to try to stir some controversy there, get, get the, <laughs> the hashtags out there. But no, so it, it looks like that's it's going into the film, according to Takei, and he's not happy about it. And I think this is a great kind of anecdotal lesson on, you know, you can try to kind of reach out and pay, you know, pay homage, honor certain people, you know, certain communities for whatever, be be it a race thing, a sexual orientation thing, a gender thing. But I think when you do these kind of things, like you said, it's not only good to consult the person that you may be inspired by or that you're trying to honor, but also maybe just involve people from that group in that decision. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, we don't know. Maybe Simon Pegg is sitting right next to, you know, several, you know, gay and lesbian people who were in on, you know, this change in the franchise's narrative, you know, that mm-hmm. that may have happened. But I just know that when I've seen this kind of thing go awry, um, and I have some personal experience with this kind of thing, at least in media, um, it's, you know, often it's this kind of well-meaning but ham-fisted attempt at kind of, you know, making a, a an honorable you know, well-meaning mm-hmm. gesture that maybe should have included more of the voices of the people you're talking to. Right. Well, we'll we'll have to see how it's how it's done in the film. I think uh, John Cho has said it's done in a very understated way. Uh, but regardless of how it's portrayed, we'll we'll just have to see and make our own opinions about it. Yeah, and I'll I'll also say this. This is maybe inappropriate, but I'll just say it. <laughs> I was I don't know. I'm a, I'm a fan of John Cho, and I was kind of like. In the back of my mind, I I kind of have this resentment that Kirk is the dude who always gets the, like, you know, get, like, the hot alien women. And I kind of, in the back of my mind, I was like, John Cho is, like, one of the few guys on the new rebooted Mm -hmm. Star Trek who I think is, like, dashing enough and cool enough and just just hip enough to, like, you know, be on another planet and, like, you know, just be in some alien bar and hook up. And no, now he's married. 
He's married with like, whatever the gender, whatever the orientation. He's married with a kid. Okay, all right. Well, so again, you know, there, there, we could do a whole conversation about how Asian men are portrayed in Hollywood, but that's neither. Well, you know, I, that was part of it too. I, I mean, I kind of, I didn't want to go too, too much there, but that's to be honest, that was part of it too. I kind of, you know, I mean, the guy, he's a good-looking guy. He's got charisma. He's funny. He's strong. He's, he's got sword skills. I mean, give him a little play there. You, you know? know that recent hashtag, uh, hashtag starring John Cho. You can go. Check it out, search it online, and see the conversation around it. But to your point, that hashtag uh, emerged from the internet meme factory because, you know, he is dashing. He is good looking. He he, he very recently was a romantic lead on a very short-lived uh, comedy called Selfie. You know, he... He could, he can do it. He's just not really given a lot of opportunity to. Moving on, we want to talk, uh, we want to kind of go back into the science area of things and talk about cryotherapy. <laughs> now, we had an episode in the past, a uh, few weeks back talking about wayward pines and it appears that they're using in that, uh, I think it's on Fox, that Fox science fiction television show, there's like some sort of cryogenics. To help people hibernate and live mm-hmm. or, or basically sleep for thousands of years and then come out and, you know, build a new community, a new society. Well, in real life, uh, cryotherapy has become this hugely popular means to recover from injury. Uh, just, and, and just if you're just someone who works out a lot, it's also become this, there a lot of, particularly in LA, I'd noticed hmm. there are a lot of, um, little facilities. In the same way that, you know, a lot of uh, tanning facilities popped up, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, or maybe even longer ago, the, now in L.A., there are a bunch of cryotherapy places where you can go into these uh, shops and step into a cryotherapy chamber. And I can't, like, I, I haven't done it myself, and, but basically it's, yeah, I'm not going there, man. <laughs> um, but you basically stay in for a few minutes. And uh, you come out and you're supposed to be rejuvenated. Uh, it's supposedly it's supposed to help your body recover quicker. And now the FDA has come out in an attempt to debunk many of these claims. So the the notice that the FDA posted on their website states uh, this rheumatoid arthritis flaring up. A trainer at your local gym suggests a safe and easy way to treat it. A three minute session in a freezing tank called a whole body cryotherapy. The notice says he'll not only tell you that it'll help put an end to arthritis uh, better than an ice pack or an ice bath, but also promises that a couple of sessions will help with depression and weight loss, exclamation point. (laughs) And the FDA says, and the FDA is a little snarky here, a little sassy, uh, not so fast. The problem is this so-called treatment they put in quotes hasn't been pre- you would think this is on buzzfeed this is on the fda's website by the way <laughs> the problem with this so-called treatment uh neck swivel you know finger snap hasn't this treatment hasn't been proven <laughs> to do any of these things uh and despite claims by many spas and wellness centers to the contrary the u.s food and drug administration the fda does not have evidence that whole body uh, cryotherapy effectively treats diseases or conditions like Alzheimer's, fibromyalgia, migraines, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, stress, anxiety, or chronic pain. Boom. So that's kind of huge. That just came out this week. We're in the first week of July. I don't know if it'll slow the trend in L.A. because this is really huge in L.A., mm-hmm. but at least for a lot of like high-level trainers – um, I have a sense that this may slow them down. Now, I tried to figure out. So, where where did all this start? Like, where, like, why did why do people think this is a thing? Aside from Kobe Bryant, you know, bragging about taking ice baths, and that's why he had like such a a long career. And I found an article in the Guardian, the Guardian, um, the UK Guardian, uh, and this was published in December of 2013. Dang! And it details uh, a skier. This is from The Guardian. When Anna Bagenholm fell while skiing and became trapped in icy water, her body temperature plummeted and her her heart stopped. But doctors were able to bring her back to life. Her extraordinary story has led to therapeutic hyperthermia being used around the world. Her story has uh, led to it being introduced, the hypothermia therapy being introduced as a protective measure for victims of strokes, liver failure, and epileptic seizures. 
recent studies have also illustrated its effectiveness in newborn ba- newborn babies who have suffered a lack of oxygen at birth. It is commonly used around the world in open heart operations where surgeons will cool the body down to as low as 10 degrees Celsius, allowing them to cut off the arterial supply to the brain uh, for up to 15 minutes without any notable, notable brain damage. And so that and it seems like um, even before that, this was kind of like kind of becoming a big thing. But now you have these cryotherapy tanks popping up in many major cities and a lot of it seems to be based on this whole notion that, you know, lowering your body temperature to just less than, you know, damaging levels has, you know, these amazing effects. And it seems like at least if you're talking about spot, you know, as a, mm-hmm. as some uh, amateur, you know, weekend warrior athlete myself, I do know that ice can help with swelling and that kind of thing. But it seems like all of this and, and taking people taking anecdotal uh, episodes like uh, Anna's. They, it seems like they're taking this to the extreme, and now the FDA is uh, stepping in. Well, you know, there's the thing that like jumps out at me is that there's a very big difference between a medical procedure with very controlled induced hypothermia that they use to because ice and cold will reduce inflammation just because it constricts your um, your your blood vessels, so it can, like you said, reduce swelling. I think any anyone who's ever sprained their ankle or gone to the doctor will have heard that. But, you know, there's a difference between doctors in a very controlled setting lowering it for a specific purpose where, you know, blood flow may be an actual, um, you know, a, a thing that could hamper surgery or something like that. And, you know, it's been tested rigorously through scientific methods and stuff like that. Then, you know, someone going, hey, if you step into this chamber for three minutes, all all of your problems will basically disappear. Like, can you, like, just if you take a common sense, like, look at it, can you really think that, you know, if you step into a chamber for, for three minutes, you're you're going to burn, like, hundreds of calories, which was another one of the, the, the benefits that they said comes from it. Do you think it's really going to boost your immunity in just three minutes? It sounds too good to be true. And, you know, the cherry on top of all of that is that this therapy was promoted by Dr. Oz, who, you know, oh, no. if you follow any type of news, that is the most dubious honor you could you could bestow upon any type of wellness treatment, because Dr. Oz is a hack, basically. Oh, oh snap. And, you know, wow. like, actually, just just so I can back back myself up here, um, you know, I think about a year ago, 10 very prominent doctors, like, they they came out with a public letter to Columbia, who has uh, Dr. Oz on their staff, and they're like, why is this guy on staff? He should not be on your staff. So, you know, if Dr. Oz is, is, is touting this, maybe you should, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Well, it's, yeah, the other thing I was thinking, interesting, I would say, allegedly a hack, allegedly, <laughs> allegedly. Uh, the Mars Magazine podcast indemnifies me. Okay. <laughs> I wish I could just like speak really fast. You know, the end of those car commercials oh. or the um, pharmaceutical commercials None where the they speak really fast. Of this podcast are actually real. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, but I, I feel like that kind of illuminates another thing that I've been thinking about, which is we're in this very unique time of scientific and technological advance, um, whether it's software and hardware or uh, you know, swallowing a pill that can then film the insides of your body to help the surgeon, you know, perform mm-hmm. some sort of remote surgery. How about that? Also, you know, while the pill is inside. I mean, there are so many things that are amazing happening right now that I think we're actually in a very dangerous time because it's I think it's going to get harder, more difficult to discern what's quackery and what's actually real cutting edge science. And And by the way. That's why we started the Mars Magazine podcast for your benefit to help you weave your way, wend your way through these <laughs> possible uh, fraudulent sciences and technologies. To your point, and you know, I think it's starting to creep up into the wellness sector more and more and more and more to the point where you know I have to admit that next week I will be trying some Soylent. Just, just to, oh, just to see, just to see. Soylent Green is people. It's people, Vic. It's people. I know, but um, what was it? Uh, just a friend of mine was like, "Yo, 
I, I ordered some Soylent, you know, and I had been talking about sometimes I'm really busy and I just don't have time to eat eat lunch sometimes. Wait, wait, wait. You're too busy to make a, a, just, I don't know, a salad or a sandwich of some sort? No, I'm you really not. You have to resort not. to this? I'm really not, but sometimes, uh, sometimes I'm, you know, especially in the hot weather, I don't have a, a huge appetite. But, you know, you and so you want to eat this amorphous gray goo <laughs> that, to my understanding, has no great taste associated with it. I, mm. I want to try it. I've got. I've, he's he's going to give me a bottle of it, and I'll try it and just see. I'm I'm kind of curious. Make sure it comes in the actual packaging to make sure it is in fact soylent. And he's not just giving you some, I don't know, some substance that he created. Because this, I hear this stuff is really like, like it doesn't go I, down well. Well, well, uh, the friend uh, I'm talking about had said like he tried it before and it was quote unquote chalky. But Ugh. if it became like the taste wasn't that terrible. And this is apparently Soylent 2.0. Now, does so- it make you smarter? I don't. I, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm so. just. I'm just curious. Like, if you're gonna start like eating this stuff or drinking it or however however it's consumed, and if you're gonna come back on the podcast like just smoking me and like <laughs> I'm just gonna be like like well, we'll trying see. to catch up and well, we'll I mean see. you're already smoking me with your in depth comic book knowledge. So you know. well, well. Haha. <laughs> no, uh, I'm just Maybe gonna... I'll have to try some of this too. Well, oh god. I, I let me let me try it first and then tell you. Anyway, so there you go. Cryotherapy, you know, ice packs, yes, cryotherapy, eh, maybe not so much according to the FDA. So speaking of technology or technological events that uh, are dubious or controversial, another story came up this week. That is absolutely astounding, fascinating, historic in its implications. And that is the daughter of the late Stanley Kubrick, the director of 2001, A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, uh, many other amazing films. Uh, The daughter of Kubrick, Vivian Kubrick, came out on Twitter, social media, and debunked the debunkers. So for many years... Uh, the moon landing, which occurred in 1969, uh, the Apollo 11 moon landing, manned by Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. For many years, there have been conspiracy theorists out there who have put out the, the notion that this was all staged, that there is no way we could have actually gotten to the moon and that the moon landing was faked and that it was done by some amazingly talented Hollywood director and if you just, I mean, it takes no time at all. If you go on YouTube, you can quickly find videos of people point by point, like the Zapruder tape, like point by point, pointing out what they think are inconsistencies of what it would really be like if you really could shoot a scene on the moon. And, you know, well, why is the flag waving and this kind of stuff? And so... One of the candidates uh, that some have brought up as the possible person who faked the moon landing for the U.S. government (laughs) is Stanley Kubrick. And so uh, Kubrick's daughter came out uh, this week and wrote, well, you know, Twitter has a 140 character limit. So what she did was she did the, the trick of where you write something, a longer thing, and then you basically just screen grab that and post the screen grab on Twitter. And I'm going to read a little bit of it here. Refaked moon landings. Surely an artist, this is Vic, again, this is Vivian Kubrick. Surely an artist such as my father, whose profound degree of artistic integrity is self-evident, evident, whose political social consciousness is manifestly present in nearly every film he made, whose highly controversial subject matter literally put his life at risk, and yet he continued to make the films he made. Don't you think he'd be the very last person to ever, emphasis hers, to ever to assist the U.S. government in such a terrible betrayal of its people? Ex- uh, question mark, exclamation point, question mark. There are many very real conspiracies that have happened throughout our history are happening presently. I'm only too aware of the dreadful manipulations perpetuated by government, secret services, banksters, banksters. I didn't misread that. Banksters. Yeah. Like gangsters, banker, gangsters, banksters, the military industrial complex, etc. But claims that the moon landing were faked and filmed by my father? I just can't understand it. How can anyone believe that one of the greatest defenders of mankind would commit such an act of betrayal? Finally, 
My love for my father, notwithstanding, I actually knew him, exclamation point. <laughs> I lived and worked with him. So forgive my harshness when I state categorically the so-called truth these malicious cranks persist in forwarding that my father conspired with the U.S. government to fake the moon landings, quote unquote, is manifest, manifestly a grotesque lie. And that is the majority of what she put in her note. Uh, on Twitter. Lots of punctuation marks there. I'm just amazed at like the passion here. Um, it seems like they, like the conspiracy theorists really got to her. And, 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 and I gotta tell you, I, I think she made a mistake because when you're this passionate with your defense, mm-hmm. that's, that's all conspiracy theorists need. <laughs> it's like, me- why would you be so worked up if this wasn't true? It's a classic case of, uh, me thinks the lady doth protest too much. Yeah. So had you ever heard of that theory? I I had heard about it. I I think it's impossible to not hear about it. It's just so ingrained in pop culture lore that, you know, the moon landing and people with the tinfoil hat saying like, you know, it didn't really happen. And the question at the tip of my tongue was, what sparked this? Like, why now? Because in, in her Twitter post, not not the screen grab, but in her Twitter post, I think she says something along the lines of, you know, like, this is, you know, it seemed like now is a really good time to, to respond and just to get this all out there. But, like, do you, do you know if there was, like, an inciting incident that she was just like, all right, once and for all, I'm going to set the record straight? Well, I don't know what pushed her over the edge, but I do know, like, a couple of articles suggested that the recent uh, documentary about Stanley Kubrick, Mm -hmm. a documentary called Room 237, uh, which contains a number of, you know, uh, theories and conspiracies that may have contributed in some way. I, I, I don't, I mean, I would love to know if you saw it. I tried to watch the Room 237. I think I got maybe 20, 20, 30 minutes in and I just couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) It just was, it just was silly. I don't know. I mean, I love when someone goes, particularly, I love documentaries. So I love when someone takes tiny details and kind of like connects the dots. But some of the stuff in room 237 was just so, it it, it was just so much of a reach Mm -hmm. that it was hard for me to continue on. I might try to watch it again. Have you seen this film? I have not seen it. I will say this though. Speaking of documentaries and Vivian Kubrick, I did see Going Clear. Have you seen that? Mm Mm-mm. Okay, so Going Clear is a documentary that details uh, the Church of Scientology. Uh, do you want to run that um, disclaimer, uh, fast-speaking text? Just because our podcast is talking about the Church of Scientology, we do not endorse the beliefs of Xenu. Hail Xenu, bye. <laughs> okay, yeah, there you go, boom. Yeah, so I saw that documentary, and um, it's not very flattering with regard to the Church of Scientology. And I bring that up because when you begin to dig into Vivian Kubrick's background, uh, and I'm not trying to, you know, assault her credibility or anything. I'm just trying to give some context. It, her family, at least, appears to believe that she has been uh, co-opted or grabbed by, you know, the Church of Scientology. And it seems like, um, you know, so now I, I get the sense this is not me. I'm just going from because I didn't even I'll just be very honest as a big I'm a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick. I didn't even know about his daughter. She apparently did the score to Full Metal Jacket was, oh. you know, very close to her father, apparently. But I knew nothing about her. Um, but as I started digging in, uh, I found this out. Apparently she was at some funeral and that might have been the last time like her mother and some members of her family saw her. And there appears to be some belief that the Church of Scientology is kind of involved with her at this point. And so I, I'm, I'm guessing that there is some issue with regard to her credibility, her perspective. But, you know, frankly, <laughs> it's odd because all that aside, this is a very full throated, very strong refutation of Conspiracy theorists by Vivian Kubrick. Yeah, she she knew knew the guy. Yeah. So, however, if I want to play uh, reverse devil's advocate, I'll just go back on the other (laughs) side again. Isn't that exactly what she'd say if she were trying to hide? (laughs) It's just a very, you know, um, it's, I just happen, like, you know, that that particular part where she's like, I knew him. I worked closely with him. Um, Yeah. 
that doesn't seem like a very strong argument to people who are hardcore conspiracy theorists who really believe in it, you know? Right. Like, that, her saying that wouldn't convince me if I actually believed in that theory at all, because I would right. say, of course you would say that. It's, it's unfortunate that someone who, meaning Stanley Kubrick, someone whose work is so just transcendent it's just a master and so you know it's unfortunate that his films are connected with this kind of weird conspiracy theory so at least on that note i'm glad his daughter came out and said her piece whatever organization she is or isn't connected to i'm glad she at least attempted to kind of put that to rest so speaking of conspiracy theories wild conspiracy theories that may or may not be uh, driven by some odd connection to science and technology. We are going to talk this week about the new series Brain Dead on CBS. No one knows what's gotten into the heads of our leaders. Anarchy, democracy. But this summer, you think we can save the country? We can try. One epic television event. My husband, Randall, he's not who he was. People are staring at us. We'll give you a clue. Eating people's brains. What? From the creators of The Good Wife comes a political thriller with a twist. <laughs> Something weird is going on. Brain Dead. And so that's just like a brief clip of Brain Dead. Um, Vic, you want to kind of lay out what's going on here? Okay, so if you haven't heard of Brain Dead, let's think about it this way. It's Idiocracy, which we talked about in episode two, meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers set in Washington, D.C., Ooh, nice. I like that. Right? Good mix. Yeah. 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 Good. I, I thought about that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, for for real. Um, so the, the star of the show is Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who uh, was most recently the star of Cloverfield Lane, 10 Cloverfield Lane, uh, which we also talked about in episode one. So she's uh, playing this young documentary filmmaker who runs out of money and she goes to Washington and basically takes up a job as a as an aide for her brother who is a democratic senator and what we don't know or what they don't know rather is that a space rock uh also known as a meteor has crash landed and a there- space rock <laughs> <I was> like- <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, space rock, uh, also known as, scientifically known as a meteor. Ah, uh, words. I know how to use them. <laughs> anyway, so a uh, so this, this meteor lands, and it's carrying some space ants that crawl into the brains of some of the most powerful people in Washington and control them. And this is why the 2016 election year is so crazy according to the premise of the show. Well, yeah, because every episode opens with, like, they let you, like, they play the television, television news in the background. And I'm pretty sure every episode that opened, they let uh, Donald Trump quotes bleed through, like, well, you know, as he's on TV. And they've got, and they've got a lot of clips of Hillary Clinton as well. And these are recent clips. Like, there's even some Bernie Sanders in there, too. So, you know, it's very... Very um, inspired by topical and current events. Yeah, and so I saw all three episodes. I think you saw two. Yeah, I've right? seen I've seen two of the three. And so I tried to find a pattern because at first I thought, okay, wait a minute, is this like some sort of? And I'm really happy that I was wrong. You know, I was really mm-hmm. worried that there would be. Is this like a stealth slam from one party against another in fiction form? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't appear to be the case, um, because both parties in the, in the series, Republican and Democrat, they both, basically, there doesn't seem to be a bent toward conservatism or liberalism. Basically, the bent is extremism. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever your views are, whether you're liberal, conservative, you just go extreme. And I'm guessing that these, these insectoid parasites, these alien parasites, I'm guessing that their logic or their hive mind tells them that going extreme with whatever the host's views were, going extreme is the way to seem more real. It's really interesting because, you know, like the parallels between real life and and like how they're how they're uh, satirizing it. It's, you know, this this show is actually done by uh, Robert and Michelle King, who did The Good Wife. And that show, it's definitely not in the realm of of sci-fi, but in terms of bleeding 
po- uh, political or topical content into into a weekly format, they are really good at it. And you know, uh, when I was watching the the second episode, I saw that Ridley Scott's name came up as executive producer oh, for the really? show. Yeah, yeah, and he's actually execu- He actually executive produced all of The Good Wife as well. So you know, maybe they drew on some of the sci-fi cred from him. But you know, to get back to Brain Dead, they do such a good like just from the two episodes I've seen, they they've done such a really good job of of taking the sci-fi element and really kind of weaving it in a way that I, you know, I was watching the two episodes and I thought, you know, maybe, maybe that, that explains the craziness that we're currently going through right now. I was incredibly impressed by this series one, because I don't know, CBS, it has a long track record of very good work. And of course, I mean, let's not forget, they brought us the original Star Trek and they're bringing us the new Star Trek, by the way. But, you know, just in terms of giving us anything kind of gritty like this, you know, particularly from the realm of science fiction in modern times, it's not something I was really expecting. I really just tried it on a lark. I did not expect to like it. This is a really good series. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, I enjoyed her in 10 Cloverfield Lane. Mm-hmm. She does not disappoint. She, I'm, I, I'm totally there. I'm with her. I believe everything she's doing. She's, I, something's gonna, she's got a lot of stuff ahead of her. She, she's strong. There's some stuff going on. Oh, uh, Tony Shalhoub is yes. in, uh, is in this, also known as Monk, you know, the obsessive compulsive guy. I really like the tone of the show because it's, serious on the one hand, but it's also very subtly comedic. That was the other thing that I think we haven't really mentioned much up until now is that the premise, the science fiction premise is pretty dark and scary. And the look is not sitcom-y. It's a very, uh, it could be West Wing. It could be an episode of West Wing, but the underlying tone is definitely dark comedy. Um, and speaking of that, I should also mention a very cool, it seems like this show was constructed in a lab specifically for geeks, uh, because the, the recaps, when you go to the next episode, they're sung by Jonathan Colton and people out there who know Jonathan Colton, they know that he is like the master of like creating these very amazing cover songs that weave in, uh, geek culture and sci-fi and technology into these kind of folksy songs. And so having him sing the recaps each week, I mean, that's just amazing. And it, it, A, it guarantees that you're going to watch the recap because you want to, you know, hear him lay down the music. But it also, it's kind of like a nod to like the geek community that has supported Colton for like, you know, so many years. And, you know, I think a danger with doing some, uh, something like this where you're kind of, you know, using the sci fi element in a more subtle way is that, you know, you ignore it completely. But one of the things that I really liked about it was how they integrate technology into the plot itself. So I guess the first thing that pops to my head is in the second episode where the the, the guy in, in the park who's playing chess, the chess master, he, his friend gets his head exploderated. Uh, yes, exploderated. Exploderated, yes. Love it. Um, and he... <laughs> you know, collects a little bit of brain matter and he's, he's thinking, you know, something's wrong here. And he sets up this really clever Jerry rigged, um, setup where he has his phone in a selfie stick and it's taking time lapses of this piece of brain. And he's flipping through like these hundreds of pictures he's taken and he sees the little, the little ant crawling. Oh, that was great. But I want to go back to the beginning where they first show the meteor, the space rock, mm. uh, land on Earth. Um, didn't you think, like, did you, do you remember, uh, in Russia when we had the meteor, the big meteor oh, in Russia? Oh, the one that, that was caught from the car cam? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I totally thought that at first I thought they had just purchased that footage. And like, you know, I, I looked at it again. I'm pretty sure that's like footage that they, you know, basically created themselves. But it looked exactly like that Russian footage. And I have to be honest, when I saw that, I got excited because I said, OK, they this is not an accident. Because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the meteor landed in the in the series. It landed in Russia. Right? right. Yeah. Yeah. And so when they did that, when they pulled that kind of, hey, this happened in real life. What if 
I mean, that's what this whole thing is, really, mm. is what if what happened in Russia kicked off the 2016 <laughs> presidential race? I love it. I love when you take real world events and turn them into an amazing what if. I also love the insect aspect. Yes. You know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I've told you this before. Maybe I haven't. I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself. But I've, like one of my great theories is that if if alien life, you know, appeared on our planet, in insectoid form, we wouldn't, I mean, in tiny insectoid form, not giant insects, but tiny insectoid form, we'd be screwed because our, our, no, our normal insects all around us look so strange. They look so otherworldly. They look so weird to the average person, you know, who's not, you know, an insect expert that, you know, we wouldn't know the difference and we'd, we'd be toast. And that's what's happening in this series. I mean, they look, for all intents and purposes, they look like ants, right? Yeah, they look like ants. And I got to say, um, most of the scenes with the ants so far, like usually when I see an ant in real life, I'm just like, eh, I'm, I'm huge. I'm, I'm going to crush you, whatever. <laughs> I will say all the scenes with the space ants in the TV show have made my skin crawl. Oh, like, I was freaking out. I freaked out like the, the one scene with Tony Shalhoub's character where where he gets infected with the ants. I was like, oh, oh my God, this is terrible. Like, I need to go vomit right now. Um, in a good way. Uh, to me, this was the scariest scene of the series. This was the moment where I said, okay, I'm in. The couple where oh. the, the, the wife has already expressed to Mary Elizabeth Winstead that she thinks something is wrong with her husband. Of course, he's already been taken over by the insect parasites. And she's expressed her concerns to Mary Elizabeth Winstead you know, they weren't really heated. So now she's at home in bed with her husband and the husband cuddles up behind her. He spoons her and she's like, "Eh, you know, not tonight. You know, <laughs> and he basically puts a UFC, you know, body lock on her and covers her mouth. And then the camera goes to the series of alien parasitic insect, you know, whatever they are you know, in a trail making their way towards yeah. her and she just loses her mind. She's like, oh, no. That moment, I said, okay, I'm in. CBS, I'm in. You know, um, the dialogue he has in that scene, you know, it sent chills up my spine because I think he's like, he says something like, I'm still me, just different or something along. He's like, you'll still be you, just not you. And that... Yeah, that was a total invasion of the Body Snatchers movie. Right? And that's... And, you know, it's it's just such a scary sci-fi thought that someone could just look like your friend and, and for all intents and purposes, you can't visibly discern any difference. But on the inside, there's no there's no brain. There's just space ants. And, and I like the wrinkle that they add of the exploding head bit. Mm hmm. Uh, essentially indicating that, you know, the transformation, the takeover, the parasitic joining doesn't take with everyone. Some people reject the uh, the takeover mm -hmm. for whatever, you know, uh, physiological reason. So I thought that was a nice wrinkle that, you know, mm. it, it has no grounding in, in reality, but it's a nice kind of, you know, wrinkle in, in the plot to kind of make it a little even more realistic, as fantastical as it is. So... Do you think, you know, if speaking of science and technology related to reality, so do you think Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are being guided by parasitic ants from space? <laughs> you know, if 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 I was one of the viewers who was listening who hadn't uh viewers who was listening, oh my god. If I was <laughs> <laughs> it's happening to you already. It's already happened. Uh no, uh if well, I drink was that just, soylent, girl. Oh god. Anyway, if I was just listening in and just listening to us describe it, I'd be like, Oh, you know, that just sounds completely ridiculous. Having watched this show, you know, it's not what I it, it, the, the great thing about the show is that that quote unquote ridiculous premise isn't actually ridiculous when you watch it. You totally buy into it. So oh, yeah. I think there is a good chance that maybe, you know, especially with Paul Ryan, that bit where he's like, I, I'm not ready to, to say that Trump is my candidate. And then like a hot second later, he's like, we, I met with Trump and he was nice. So yeah, I'm on, I'm on this crazy train. You know, yeah, maybe, I'm maybe someone put Paul Ryan, despite his many hours in CrossFit, into a UFC hold and Space Ants got into his brain. Well, I mean, not to get too out there, but let me just 
throw this at you. Are you aware of this uh, syndrome uh, whereby cat there's like some uh, oh, cat parasite. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's called Toxoplasma gondii. Yeah, it's like something that that sounds fun. It sounds. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. They get it from like the cat litter, and it infects their brains, and it can be passed on to humans who have cats. Yeah. Well, yeah, and apparently it's. Uh, this is a scientific fact, by the way. This, we're not. This is not conjecture on our part. It's apparently linked to uh, mental issues, including schizophrenia. And there are other like documented uh, instances in nature where parasites of one sort or another uh, actually take over a host and impact that host's behavior. And that host lives a fairly normal, long life, except they exhibit different behavior specifically linked to this parasite. So, I mean, I think in that respect, the, the plot of this series is brilliant. It's, mm. it's brilliant because it's something that, you know, again, I agree with you. If, if I was just listening to someone describe this, it sounds silly. It sounds, you know, and then, and it's a dark comedy. Oh, well, I know this is silly. No, people, this is a good, this, this is good stuff. Don't wait. Don't let a year pass and then try to binge on this. This is good stuff. And, and the fact that Colton is doing the recaps in real time, that's like an added treat, but this is something that really happens in nature. And so putting it into a science fiction plot, I think is like, it, it makes the whole thing stronger. Yeah. And let me just, just to circle back on the, uh, Toxoplasma Gandhi, the, the cat insanity uh, issue. Cat sanity. <laughs> this is from this is from health.com. It says uh, you can't pick up T. Gandhi, the abbreviation, uh, just by petting your cat. The most common way it transfers from cat to human is via handling feces and then <laughs> accidentally ingesting the parasite. Oh, gross! For example, for example, you touch your face before washing your hands. Hello, that's pretty common. And they and can they also say? Um, it can cause flu-like symptoms, eye damage, miscarriage, or fetal development disorders. And it's and it says uh, it's the reason pregnant. And this is important. It's the reason pregnant women are advised against scooping the litter box. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm I mean, a let's dog have, let that person, sit. but now I'm really a dog person. <laughs> And, and then this is like the history of the parasite is this, uh, and I've seen, I've, I've read this story in various sources over and over again. So I actually know the details. I'm just reading it, you know, from health.com now. Cats pick up the parasite in the first place from other infected rodents or birds by hunting outside or coming in contact with the feces of an infected cat, according to the ASPCA. So if your cat doesn't go outside, if your cat doesn't hunt or go outside, this greatly reduces the, the chance that your cat will get it. Uh, nevertheless, you know, Never. I mean, this is scary stuff. I mean, I think if you just search online, I think it's something like one in three cats is a, is a murderer. Because they yeah, love killing yeah. things. You know, <laughs> one in three cats loves to kill things. So one in three cats probably has a parasite that, you know, when you clean the litter box, you'll get infected. Yikes. Yeah, well, the, it, you won't get infected. There is a chance that you could get this uh, T. Gandhi. <laughs> Isn't that a great name? Horrible name. T. <laughs> so Gandhi. Scary. Like, T. The T. Gandhi. Um, yes, I mean, all that to say, the, the series, you know, has all of these whiffs of truth. The... Uh, the, the Russian meteor crash, the political environment. And, you know, when I see something like Brain Dead, it, it, it this is genius. It's a genius show because it kind of, it, it makes you consider, are these people actually crazy? <laughs> are all of these people crazy? <laughs> um, and, and it's really weird too. If I don't know how closely you paid attention to this, um, but there are a couple instances where, uh, one of the people who have already been taken over are mm -hmm. kind of questioned, like kind of like, oh, what do you mean? Or what's right. going on? And then they start just rattling off these statistics. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. And just, I, you know, it's it's kind of the hive mind thing again, where I think in the first episode, she, it's not statistics, but she goes and she starts investigating and everyone word for word quotes the same thing back to her because, you know, they no longer have brains and they just have the, the, the space anti-hive mind. I'm just fascinated as to like, okay, what I didn't investigate is, is this an ongoing series? Is this a limited run? Because, I mean, basing it in the world of Trump versus Clinton, 
indicates that we're going to at some point see Trump or Clinton on screen or at least like, you know, an actor playing Trump or Clinton, you know, or following their entourage or see some reality. I have faith in the showrunners. I really enjoy The Good Wife and just seeing how they've taken the strengths of The Good Wife and how they've married it so so richly to to the culture and tradition of of sci-fi. I think I think they they'll find a way. And by the way, if you're look if you're searching for this online, it's one word, brain dead, not two words. I think you said it's available like if you're not watching it in real time on CBS, it's available on If you have an Amazon Prime account, it's actually free first season. But you can also if you don't have Prime, you can just buy it. Right. So if you are sitting on the political sidelines and you're wondering uh why, you know, the candidates for president are saying such outlandish things, this may be the series to give you solace in those troubled moments when you're trying to figure it all out. And you can basically just chalk it up to space ants. Space ants from Space Rocks. And that is the end of this episode of Mars Magazine, uh, the Mars Magazine podcast. You can access the podcast in several ways via iTunes, Apple iTunes, via Google uh, in their new podcast section, via Stitcher, and via SoundCloud. And if you're a YouTuber and you just like to you know, listen to things via YouTube, we also have a YouTube channel. And that's every place that we're listed. We're listed as Mars Magazine, one word. And you can also see everything we're doing at MarsMagazine.com. And that's all one word. No dashes or anything like that. This has been the Mars Magazine podcast. This is Adario Strange with Vic Song. And we will see you in the future.